Our text for today comes from 1 Peter, the first chapter. And I'd invite those of you who are able to stand as God's word comes among us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, the book of 1 Peter has some great adjectives. New birth, living hope, great mercy, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Call me a nerd. Wouldn't be the first time. But really, this makes the book of 1 Peter a little different than the other epistles. And these describing words have a story to tell. The phrase that immediately grabbed my attention when I sat down to spend some time with this text was genuine faith. Verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Genuine faith. We are hungry for genuine. Genuine friendship. Genuine love. Genuine connection. Real, not as a means to an end. Genuine. In a lot of the research coming out on millennials and church attendance, we see this word authentic come up over and over again. And even in our visioning process, that word authentic kept popping up. People are searching for genuine. 
It makes me think of visiting New York City and all the places and people who are selling, you know, fake Kate Spade and coach bags and fake Oakley sunglasses. When I would go to New York as a teenager, that was like a thing, to find these knockoff versions of really expensive things. We long for the real deal, but we live in a time when it's hard to find the real deal because it's pretty easy to make things look real even if they aren't. And I don't just mean handbags and sunglasses and movies. I mean relationships. I mean experiences like pure love and true joy. I mean genuine faith. The writer of 1 Peter knew something about the struggle because it shows up in the epistle. In verse 7, the Greek word that's used that we translate genuine can also be translated proving or testing. For the first century Christians, genuine faith was tested faith. Their faith was tested by the political and cultural climate in which they lived. If you were to catch a Roman citizen at the watering hole on a bad day and ask, hey, tell me what you think about the Christians, the Roman would likely proceed to tell you that the Christians were intolerant, morally debased, communist, atheist cowards who were responsible for the decline of the empire. As Christianity spread like wildfire, the Romans were frustrated by the threat this posed to their infrastructure. Because their infrastructure relied on the lives of young, healthy men to feed the war machine, on the subjugation of women and slaves, and on religious plurality to keep everybody happy enough to maintain loyalty to the emperor. The Romans called Christians haters of humanity and found them offensive because they refused to fight in the military, because they distributed their wealth and gave widows and poor people equal status in the fellowship, and because they didn't attend shows and sporting events and religious festivals thrown by the empire. Rumors went around that Christians sacrificed babies for their communion services, when what Christians actually did was take in and raise abandoned baby girls who had been left to die. In the first 30 years after Jesus' death, tensions between the Romans and the Jews and the Christians were at a steady simmer. And the first major persecution broke out in the year 64 when the emperor Nero made Christians a scapegoat for a massive fire that destroyed a major part of the city of Rome. Many Christians died in this persecution in Rome, like Paul and Peter. The early Christians were also tested in ways that hit closer to home. 
Remember, the earliest Christians were Jewish people who were not out to start a new religion. The Jewish establishment didn't agree with the Christians, and they were not afraid to demonstrate their rejection and scorn. Elizabeth Johnson, who's a Catholic theologian, makes a great case that the book of 1 Peter was written to Christian slaves and women owned by or married to non-Christian men. So not only were these readers looking for hope in their perilous practice of Christianity in the empire, they were also trying to cope with the strife that their faith caused in their marriages and with their masters. Relationships that had a lot of control over their lives. For the people who first read 1 Peter's letter, their faith was tested by scorn and rejection and ridicule, not just of politicians and officials, but also their family and friends. So Peter gives these Christians a pep talk by preaching this ridiculous theology of suffering as opportunity to purify and beautify their faith, to be unveiled when all would be made known in Jesus. For these people who had no authority and autonomy over their lives, Jesus and the Christian martyrs were their heroes. For them, the sign of God's favor was not riches or power, but willingness to die at the hands of their enemies and not commit violence. We are far removed from the early Christian experience of persecution and martyrdom. Yet we share in common God's invitation to show the world a totally different way of life. Our faith is proved genuine as it goes through the ringer of life. And instead of emerging in the image of culture, we come out on the other side formed in Christ's image. In some of his writings on Sabbath, Walter Brueggemann talks about the weirdness of practicing Sabbath. So, as the Israelites, back in the Old Testament, wandered around in the desert, where, you know, sustenance is kind of scarce, God called them to a totally counterintuitive day of rest. So when all the other living things around them were scampering around for food and water, the Israelites were instead to be resting in God and celebrating that God gave them enough to survive for the day. I love that word, weirdness. The early Christians were weird, too. 
and some of the ways that they didn't fit into the culture. If God calls you to do something or not to do something, and you feel like it makes you a little weird, maybe you're on the right track. So we've talked a little bit about the word genuine. Let's talk about the word faith. When we hear the word faith, often we think of our belief and our action. So we kind of associate it with our responsibility, right? Like God is responsible for the grace and I'm responsible for the faith. So faith is me kind of holding up my end of the bargain, But this is actually backwards. Faith is a gift from God given to us by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for faith is persuasion. So we can think of faith as divine persuasion generated by God and received by us. Do you see how we often think of it the opposite way? This is important because if we are counting on ourselves to have faith, that plan at some point is going to fail or backfire. It will fail when life circumstance overcomes our ability to generate faith. It will backfire by pushing us into a cycle of guilt and shame. So we encounter a challenge in life. We struggle extra hard to have faith. And then we feel guilty because we don't have enough faith or we don't believe strongly enough. And so out of our guilt, we put more pressure on ourselves to do better and be better and get it together and have more control. Except we can't. And so we feel more guilty. And the cycle continues. This is why faith is life-changing. When, by some miracle, we can remember that faith, first and foremost, is a gift from God. And not some gift that we try to give God. When we can remember that, that changes our lives. And do you notice how that shifts the focus from us to God? Our job is not to generate faith, but to look to God for faith. To ask God to open our hearts and our minds to trust and rest God, I just love what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this. That even wanting to trust counts. Saying to God, God, I wish I could be open to you. I wish I could sense you in my life right now, but I can't. I wish I wanted to rest in you and not in all the other things I'm trying to get straight so I can rest. 
These scattered bits and pieces, these I wish I could prayers, are enough. They are enough for God to work with. What we quickly forget is that spirituality is wired into our DNA. Humans are spiritual beings, and we are wired to connect with things outside of ourselves, like relationships and universal experiences like love and empathy and compassion. This is vital to who we are. And we can be spiritually formed in the direction of goodness or spiritually formed in a way that leads to nothingness. Unfortunately, our lifestyle and our culture doesn't really nurture and encourage this part of us. We live in a rush and hurry time. We are busy people with to-do lists that are longer than the day. We can get so busy doing the work of the Lord and knowing the Bible that our being gets crowded out. And if you know anything about Jesus, I hope you know how much he cares about your being, about the kind of person you are, and not just what you do, and what you know. Not only are we tempted by busyness, we are tempted by apathy and escapism. Tuning ourselves out from the present and from people around us and things that we need to deal with. Binging on TV, Obsessive internet, Pinterest, Facebook, cell phone surfing, video games, the list goes on and on. And don't hear me say that these things are bad. I think done with intention, these things are fine. But when they become a way to check out from things that we need to engage, when they begin to control us, there's a problem. My last summer of seminary, I did a unit of CPE, which is essentially training for pastoral care. CPE is great, but it's also a little bit like boot camp and root canals rolled into one experience. You learn a lot about yourself, but you also have to get into your mess, which is not always fun. So one day we sat around in a group session in this split-level 80s fabulous house where our supervisor practices therapy. So we were in this room with old carpet and warm furniture, and somehow we got onto the topic of Netflix binging. So just to provide a little background, Netflix, you know, is an online service where you can watch TV shows and movies and When one TV show ends, it automatically starts the next one, and there are no commercials. So you could just sit there for days and let Netflix play TV show after TV show. So as the conversation went on, we realized that most of us were, at some point during the week, turning on Netflix for hours at a time and 
sort of zoning out. So as we're talking, our wise drill sergeant, blunt supervisor, quietly sat over in his bamboo chair in his Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. And when the conversation paused, we all kind of looked at him like, okay, what do we have to talk about next? And he looked around the circle, and he shook his head, kind of gave us this like facepalm look, and with more colorful language than I can use here, he said, you guys, what are you doing? This is a habit you need to keep in check. This is not cool. What are you trying to cope with? Well, at the time, I was about 12 weeks pregnant with Annalena, and I knew exactly what I was trying to cope with. Nausea, anxiety, stress, life out of my control. But that was a powerful moment for me. I realized that I was using something that wasn't healthy and wasn't life-giving to me or my relationships to cope with what was going on. So it gave me another way to check in with myself about my spiritual and emotional well-being. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Your faith, your spiritual life is precious to God. It is more precious than all the money in the world. It is more precious than your title or position. It is more precious than your greatest achievement, your social status, and yes, even more precious than your grades. Your faith is precious to God. Six years ago, I took a group of high school students to Baguio City in the Philippines on a mission trip. And we stayed at a seminary, a Baptist seminary there in Baguio City. And we worked with CBF missionaries Ryan and Cindy Clark. One of the things we did was visit a local residential area and host a day camp for children to teach them about Jesus and about hygiene and about safety what was a little different about this residential area is that it was built in the local trash dump. In fact, when people talked about the neighborhood, they referred to it as the dump. When I think about genuine faith, I think about the Christians I met in the Philippines. I encountered genuine faith many times there like the women deacons of the church that we worked with, who, while we were digging the foundation for a new part of their church basement in a typhoon, stayed in this tiny 10-foot by 10-foot church kitchen and cooked for us all day long. And they took a break only to invite our youth to go walk around the neighborhood in a typhoon, so they could visit the sick and homebound and pray with them. They made home visits every day. They cooked this unbelievable food to show us hospitality and love. 
My most profound experience with genuine faith in the Philippines was with the leader of the children's camp in the dump. She was quiet, and she kind of kept in the background of all of our activities. And when we began to pack up for the day and head out after a ginormous face-painting mosh pit party, because there aren't really lines or personal space in the Philippines. It's more like concentric, tightly packed circles (laughs) when you're waiting to get your face painted. So we turned around from all that hustle and bustle to see that she had set a table with a couple of snacks, these packs of kind of Oreo wafer-like cookies, and a couple of two-liter bottles of orange soda for us. And the youth were, of course, super excited because the Southeast Asian flavor palette was a little challenging for them. So they were ready for some American fat and sugar. So we gobbled up our goodies and said thank you and headed on our way. Later, when Ryan and I were talking, he said, you know, what happened today was pretty special. I was like, well, yeah, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, the camp coordinator doesn't really make a whole lot of money. And she spent about a month's wages on those snacks she got for you guys. She wanted to honor what you did today by getting you a snack like what you'd have in America. The writer of First Peter began with the end in mind, telling those Christians who found themselves on the wrong side of history that in the fullness of time, the breathtaking beauty of their genuine, precious faith would be fully known. It's pretty amazing how we have inherited a faith that flourishes under persecution and practices extravagant generosity and hospitality, especially in poverty. Which leaves me wondering, what if someone from halfway across the world came into your life? What if someone from another time read your story, how would they experience your faith? Would it be the real deal?